it is important for working women and working mothers to define their own success and to have the confidence to figure that out first. Hello, and welcome back to Bosom. This is a podcast where I want to find out how women, non-binary and gender non-conforming people have influenced and shaped our thoughts and lives. In a world where women's contributions are often disregarded, I want to learn more about how and how much they have impacted the people we are and the society we live in. To do this, I'm talking to guests about how people of marginalised genders have influenced their lives, identities and understandings of the world. Today, I'm speaking to award-winning legal strategist and committed social impact investor, Angeline Lim. Originally from Singapore, Angeline spent most of her legal career in Hong Kong, where she held senior leadership roles in international law firms from 2000 to 2017. During that time, she led in both cutting-edge legal solutions for multinational clients and implementing firm-wide women's initiatives, associate training and mentoring programmes. Transitioning to the social sector, Angeline now focuses on bringing systemic change to vulnerable communities in Hong Kong. Hello, Angeline. Thank you so much for coming onto my podcast. It's really exciting to speak to people, and especially people who are so successful in their world of work. How did you find choosing your list of women? Well, thank you, Lucy, for having me on the podcast. I mean, this is really exciting for me. It's the first podcast I've been asked to be on. Um, I thought the list of, of women that you asked me to pick up was also interesting. And to be honest, it was the first time that I thought about some of those. Um, for some of them, it was really easy. Um, the teenage icon that came to me straight away. Some others, it wasn't quite as easy and I had to think a little bit. It's a really great list. And you've picked people who are kind of from very different stages of your life. And do you think that your idea of being a woman or your relationship to womanhood has, has changed over the years? Yeah, I would say it definitely has. I think I wasn't one of those teenagers or even young adults actually who was you know wildly confident very self-possessed and knew what she wanted from day one and for me it was really quite a bit of soul searching and I don't think I really worked out what my career path was going to be what I wanted to achieve in my career and outside my career until I was probably say about five to ten years Mm. into practice so between the ages of you know 20 five-ish no 27-ish I would say um to 30 and that's when it really all started falling into place whereas you know I had some classmates who knew as soon as they graduated what they wanted to do and they had three or five year plans and I remember one of them telling me um what her three or five year plan was at the time age 27 I just looked at her thinking oh my gosh I really lost out here I, I have no idea what she's talking about so thankfully I've moved on since then yeah I mean I definitely am currently not somebody with a three to five year plan so it's great to be chatting to somebody who you have got such an amazing career and you didn't have a three to five year plan when you're my age <laughs> that's <laughs> definitely a relief to hear so just uh re-establish the kind of structure of what we're going to talk about 
So I've asked you to pick mm-hmm. four women who have somehow impacted your life, influenced the way you think and behave. And they come from four categories that are a teenage or childhood icon, a fictional character, somebody you've never met mm-hmm. and somebody who's no longer alive. Some of them I knew lots about before and some of them I knew absolutely nothing about. So I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about all of them. Great. So let's get going. The first person I'd love Mm -hmm. to ask you about is your teenage icon. And you have picked Annie Lennox. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit about Annie Lennox and your relationship with Annie Lennox? Annie Lennox. I think she, I remember the first music video back in the day, 1983, um, Sweet Dreams. And I was just transfixed. I've never seen anything like it. I thought she was amazing. Um, She was really, you know, going against convention. She didn't dress like um, a woman rock would. And she was just so different. And I think it really, for music videos and for music, I think she really set the bar very high. And certainly for a then 83, you know, 17, 18 year old um, in Singapore, which was very conservative at the time, it was just like, I, you know, eye-opening, mind-boggling. So the context there was um, I was in high school doing A-levels, and I was in a class that was really um, like a bunch of rebels, actually. So that that group was the second year of a government-sponsored program to um, select, you know, elite students from different schools put them all together and actually trained them to go to Oxbridge. And so our tutors, and we were, you know, basically scholars in this program. And their task was really to get us Oxbridge ready in, in two years. But the school that we all attended was um, essentially a, a Chinese school. It was a very it was a very prestigious um, Singapore school, whereas we had this little class of rebels, which were supposedly, you know, meant to be Western thinking. We, were, we had tutors who were meant to open up our minds. And, and so we really stood out like a sore thumb, this little group of us. And so I think there were about 20 of us. And we were always getting into trouble with um, the school rules, you know, the way the school uniform was supposed to be worn and so on and so forth. And so it was in that context that Annie Lennox entered my life. And I thought, fantastic and so you know it's been amazing and I think she was such a strong character she you know wasn't afraid to to be different and she dressed differently she had music that was different she had videos that were different she introduced ideas that were you know so unconventional makeup that was so unconventional and I was you know playing her music all the time and at that time as well, I started teaching aerobics classes, wow. you know, aerobics back in the day. I, I don't think you have aerobics classes and now they're probably called, you know, Zumba or something else. But back in the day, um, aerobics classes, and I was always playing music during my classes. So, yeah, that's the extent of my relationship. She's not only rebellious in like her music, but she's kind of rebellious in her idea of being a woman she has this kind of androgynous look exactly yes it feels very like punk and very confrontational um you were saying that your school even though you were kind of in this kind of supposedly like mind-opening class it was run by this conservative authority Mm -hmm. do you think something 
someone like Annie Lennox, do you think that was a result of being part of this kind of class that was trying to create more liberal thinking? Or do you think that was a result, a kind of reaction to their traditional authority? That's an interesting question. So I I was in an all-girls school up till 15, 16. And then when I went to high school, that was co-ed. But I do think it certainly has to do with the individual because not even in our class of I don't know, 20-something, not all of us got in trouble all the time. <laughs> there were some who were, you know, very well behaved, particularly for being in a class like ours. So they certainly not have been interested in Lennox. In fact, I don't believe that they were. But yeah, I, I do think the fact that we were in a class which was so different. And I think at that age as well, you're, you know, you're trying to be different. You're looking for your identity. Like, what is it? You know, what's your self-identity? It's a group identity. And, you know, if, if we had a label of rebels on it, I think some of us definitely did um, relish that, that label, actually, and wore it quite mm. proudly. When you were also, when you were a teenager in Singapore, were you influenced by like British and American musicians as well as musicians from Asia? Um, I, I think me personally, probably more um, Western yeah. musicians rather than Asian musicians. And I would say primarily because at home it was, we were English speaking mm. or um, a Chinese dialect because of my grandmother. Um, who also spoke Malay, but we weren't, but the influences were definitely Western rather than Asian. Um, you know, so TV, mm, um, all of that, most, no, sorry, I lie, most of that was Western TV and a, and a pretty healthy mix of both, um, you know, horrible American sitcoms and series as well as um, mm. English ones. Yeah, Annie Lennox, she seems to have been an icon that has managed to remain being an icon for her whole career. Exactly. I mean, she's really just, you know, gotten better with age, I think. There was a quite a funny thing about two years ago, someone who must have been in their early 20s, who was working for a a small label producer, tweeted Annie Lennox Mm -hmm. saying something along the lines of, I've just heard your music. I think it could be really great. get in contact because we'd love to work with you. She replied something quite funny, like, don't worry, I think I've got myself sorted. <laughs> Gosh. And that person will forever be known as the person who treated any levels without knowing. Without the respect that she deserves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so the next person I mm-hmm. would love to chat about is a fictional character that you've been influenced by. And you've chosen the extremely iconic Joe from Little Women from the book by Louisa May Alcott. Little Women is my all-time favourite fictional book. I loved it. And Joe, I think, just kind of stood out as a character because she was mm. so strong. And, you know, apart from wanting to succeed in her own area, she was also you know, mindful of her sisters and doing what she could to to rally them and look after them. And yeah, I don't I, I wouldn't say I identified with her, but I think she represented a character that I felt I could look up to and who I would want to have around if I was in that mm. family. And I think to be honest, um it was really just a strength of character, which I think 
you know, came through so clearly in the book. When you emailed me saying that was who you've chosen, I kind of, my immediate reaction to that was she's, and also interestingly, Louisa May Alcott is the, the same, a woman who basically mm. is looking to enter into this extremely male-dominated field of writing and publishing. Yeah. And you are an extremely successful woman in the world of law and business. And like, do you think you have, you took any of that energy from Joe into your career? I can't say that I intentionally did, but I don't know whether that what she stood for and the strength of career, I, I, don't, I don't think I took that intentionally into my career, but I'm sure that would have influenced me you know, from the moment I read the book you know, mm. to stand up to authority, to, to, to speak up when you know, something isn't right and to really speak up for those who can't and to, to think creatively, you know, to come up with solutions as opposed to just looking at the problems and, and leaving it at that. I think some of that definitely I did take on. But generally, I wouldn't say specifically in, in relation to um, legal practice. Yeah, that's almost too specific. Because I think as well, she's this figure that is both, like what you were saying, she's both hugely ambitious but has this real dedication Mm. to her family and to being a sister and to being a friend. Mm -hmm. And she is an amazing figure in that sense of not just being, I want to be a career and I'm not interested in anything else. And I'm going to love my family, but that doesn't stop me from being in my career. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I, like I say, I never made that connection, but now that you've, mentioned it and I think it is actually very relevant for today where with working women and working moms you know working moms at any level quite frankly not just in the business world but now in the social sector as well and seeing all of that you know with um and you know with Mm. nannies who are also themselves working moms there's a lot of juggling that women do generally, which honestly, you know, it might sound very trite, but men don't do the same amount of juggling. And there's no way that they will ever understand what the difference is. But mm. No one thinks of the idea of a working dad in the same way mm. as a working mum. I mean, I think one of the people you've chosen later, you speak about this, but there's a, yeah, this kind of emotional pressure on women to be able to to have to be a, f- a fully dedicated mother and a fully dedicated worker. It's, it's interesting, actually. I think there are societal pressures, but there are also um, pressures which individuals put mm-hmm. on themselves. And I think given where I am now at the age and stage of you know, my life, my career, I can actually look back and say, you know, can women have it all? I think you can, but it depends on your definition of having it all and, and what it is. And when I first started out in my legal practice, and certainly when I was a young mom, or you know, when I first made partners, so all the different milestones in your life, there are a lot of pressures to, you know, like I have to succeed and I have to succeed, you know, at this same level. I've got to bring in the same number of clients as my male colleagues, I've got to bring even more clients. And with my male colleagues, and I think it is important for working women and working mothers 
to define their own success and to have the confidence to figure that out first and then to go after it. So that way, your measure of success is really something that you've worked out for yourself that I think a lot of women don't. And I can say that because in the early part of my career, I didn't. And I, did, and I was really following what everybody else defined as success, whether it was men or women or the firm or society, whatever. But it's only, you know, again, unless you're the really self-confident, self-possessed young women, like what I wasn't, it's only after a few years in practice, maybe a decade or so, that's when I think you really come into self-confidence, certainly in my generation mm. anyways. I suspect that that, age of confidence that women come into is actually lower mm. now, younger. So I think women in your generation will come into that much faster. And I think that whole the measure of success from the start of my career to what I viewed as the measure of my success towards the end of my career was very, very different. I think it was important for, I think it is important for women particularly to work out what it is that they want in their career and what their mm. priorities are. Going back to Little Women, I think this was made more clear in the film, mm. possibly, than in the actual books. But all four of the sisters, they all have these four very different goals and idea of what makes them happy. Mm. Um, True. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting look at, oh yeah, what you're saying, you can have this idea of thinking like, I need to be the top. Mm. And actually for some people to be the top is really important and that's what they should go for but actually for some people it's to build a really happy family or to be able to give time to charity or to have yeah. time to be creative as well yeah exactly right and I think the thing the, the point is if you don't work it out first you might actually waste a number of years going up the wrong yeah. ladder this leads on really nicely to the third woman that you've chosen who is somebody that you've mm -hmm. never met, and you have picked Indra Nooyi. Indra Nooyi, for years, was one of was always featured at you know the top of any list of Fortune 500 company leaders, Fortune 20 um, company leaders, and the fact that she was well, a she was a woman and heading up an iconic American company that in itself is such an achievement but the fact that she was a woman of color leading an iconic American company I think it's you know really something to to note and the thing that struck me about Indra was her style of leadership was very um was not abrasive and she got to where she was through hard work and being innovative and being creative and being dedicated she, I think like a lot of uh, successful women in business, she also had her moments of regret that, you know, she wasn't able to spend enough time with her family. And I do remember reading a, an interview with her where she, this was towards the end of her career, her very successful career, actually, where she shared that um, she wasn't able to, to have dinner with her two girls and it struck me because I've got two daughters as well and she's got two and she wasn't able to spend enough time with them and that really struck me I think was critical actually in me then working out for myself whether I did want to continue with 
my trajectory as well and continue to be successful in the legal field, et cetera, et cetera. Or whether I wanted to take her advice from that interview to work out what was important for me. And I think it was one of the um, many aha moments in that particular year. It, it was part of the start of my working and exit strategy from legal private practice. Wow. So that's quite a direct impact that she... It, it spoke to me at yeah. the time. Yes. There's a lot of debate about the kind of importance of having women and people of colour as CEOs of these huge multi-million billion dollar companies Mm -hmm. what do you think is the importance of having someone because she was born in India what do you think the role of having somebody like her in those really high-ranking positions is I think we have we are starting to move away from the focus being on just women to just having a more diverse representation in company leadership. So whereas I'd say, you know, even in the last five years, the discussion has always been on getting more women on boards. But I think now, and rightly so, the focus is not on just female representation, because diversity includes the whole spectrum. It's, you know, people of color, not Mm. just women of color, but men of color as well. It includes those who have, you know, different sexual orientations. So the whole LGBTQI population, they need to be represented as well. And, you know, if you you look out to the composition of the population in any country, those in leadership, those who are leading in the corporate field, those who are able to speak out, they have to be represented Mm. too. So in my um, legal private practice, I started out with a large Singapore firm, large firm in Singapore, it was the largest in Singapore. Then when I moved to Hong Kong, I joined a, an English silver circle firm. Then I moved to an English magic circle firm. And then I moved to an American firm. And at the time, you know, the, there's, a, the, there's a popular um, a view that in American firms, they absolutely get your pound of flesh and you will work, you know, 24-7. And that part is true. But there is another side to American firms as opposed to as compared with English firms, which was really quite interesting. The American firms are much more democratic um, and the English firms were a lot more hierarchical. It was very interesting. And I, of course, did not know any better until I went to the American firm. And I thought, oh, hang on, hello. Um, And so it was for women as well. But interestingly, in the women's network that we had in in my last firm, the women partners in the American offices felt the inequality between the male partners and the female partners much more than, it, it was much more of a thing for them than it was for the women partners in the European offices. And for me, and at the time, I was the only woman partner in Asia, which tells you something. And so it was interesting because the fact of the matter is, in Asia, the difference between males and females in business is, I believe, not as distinct as it is in Europe and certainly not as distinct as it is in the States. So in the States, it's a big deal if you are a woman of color and you made it to the top and you're leading an American company. In Asia, you see it all the time. Well, not all the time, but enough, mm. right? In China, interestingly enough, if you look at the statistics for China, 
China probably has the highest percentage of women leading big companies than does the rest of Asia. That's a very interesting statistic. Yeah. Do, do you think there's a, a clear-cut reason behind that? I don't think it's a clear-cut reason because ultimately it still does depend on the individual. I think in Asia, a lot depends on relationships as well. But I think, you know, one, I, I'm not sure how well-known this is, but Mao Zedong said women hold up half the sky. And this was said, you know, in the context of the Cultural Revolution, where everybody was equal and women basically had to do that bit as well. You know, that's, that's mm. ingrained into the mainland Chinese, um, not beliefs, but, you know, it is, it's just ingrained. It, it's, it's, part, yeah. it's part of the deal as you're growing up. And so if women hold up half the sky, they're entitled to half mm. the pie as well. And so I think that there must be some of that, that, you know, kind of infiltrates the, the thinking, the teaching, the education. I'm definitely going to go and look up about that more because I'm really clueless on the corporate world. <laughs> We're going to move on to your final person that you've chosen. Mm -hmm. And this is somebody who's no longer alive. And you have picked your mm -hmm. aunt, Beatrice. Tell us about Beatrice. I would be happy to. So I think she was the interesting choice for me when filling out, you know, when, when considering the list of women you'd asked me to select. And I think probably the other three choices, I didn't have to think too hard. And, you know, some of them came, you know, really easily. But for Beatrice, I, at first I thought, well, well, who would it be? And then when I thought about her, it was, it was so obvious that, you know, it, it had to be her. Mm. So she was my mum's oldest first cousin. Her dad was my mum's mom, my granny's um, brother. And she was the oldest of about 11 siblings and half siblings. And seven of them were sent by their parents out of Vietnam in the 30s to live with my granny and her family. And I think I'm not even sure if my mom was around um, at the time when they all came over. But in any case, they all grew up together in, you know, one house and um, not a huge house. Uh, but apparently it was, you know, always crowded, but always filled with happy noise. And when I came along, by that time, my grandparents had moved to a larger house and my mom and my parents were living with them, uh, as was my Aunt Beatrice and two of the sisters so there were three of the, the original mm. you know, 11 siblings living with them still and she was still working when I came along and I was old enough to remember and she were her job was a um, typist in the office of the director of medical services at the Singapore General Hospital um, but certainly it was a very prestigious position to have because she was basically you know working for the boss of the large hospital in Singapore. And my early memories of her was, um, you know, she would put on her white uniform and head off to work every day. And then she'd come home around about five or you know, 5.30 or so. And as soon as she got home, she would then, you know, kind of change out. And then she would start preparing dinner for the whole household. Um, and she was a phenomenal cook, I mean, <laughs> amazing wow. dishes, so spoiled growing up there. And she was really, really selfless, actually. I mean, that's how I would describe her. Um, absolute paragon of patience, 
and selfless to a fault. Like she would let everybody else go ahead, never ask for anything, and really, you know, seemed to be quite happy just pottering around and looking mm. after the rest of us. And I don't know whether that was because she was the oldest of a very large brood of siblings and half siblings, but you know, certainly, and, and as contrast, actually, her the sister after her was actually not like her at all and was very headstrong, you know, was was a bit of a go-getter, actually. And it was interesting, actually, and honestly, I'm actually just thinking about this now. I haven't thought about it for a very long time, but they were very different, the two of them. Yeah. And yeah, so and so she would effectively hold down two jobs. She there was her day job, and then she'd come home and kind of do the household work, you know, look after the rest of us, prep dinner. And then after work, uh, after dinner, she would do the cleaning up, you know, clean the kitchen, um, then go to bed and then start all over again. But one memory I have of her, which really, really stands out, and I'm very embarrassed to share about it now, thinking back, was when I was in my early teens, I decided that I needed my own room. And there was actually no space. Um, and so I couldn't really have my own room. But what my aunt did, my aunt Beatrice did, was she effectively gave me her room, gave me her bed, and she made do with a fold-up bed, <laughs> fold-up bed, which she folded out every night. And so we shared a room, essentially, but during the day, because the bed was folded up, so I could pretend that it was just my room. Oh. <laughs> and I, I know, isn't it terrible? Oh. And... Um, I had, you know, the, the, the permanent bed, as it were, the proper bed. And, and she just did this without complaint or keeping a fuss or anything, you know. And there was this horrible self-entitled teenager saying, I need a room. And she gave me her room. Do you know, so that was the extent to which she really, um, it's quite emotional. She, um, she, just, she just gave everybody everything. Mm, she sounds amazing. She must have been so in tune to recognize that because I think it's one of those things that when you are 13 and you think I need a room and you're not it's not even that you're being really selfish it's this time when you're working out yourself yeah and trying to be grown up and it kind of sounds like she had this amazing ability to recognize that that's what that was that wasn't you just being horrible or anything it, it feels like she was giving you an emotional and physical space to be this like teenager who's working out themselves and I think now that you know all of that is so mainstream we can say yes that's what she was doing she was giving me space mm. at the time you know this is a whole generation ago pretty yeah much. she just did it <laughs> yeah just thinking that it was so amazing but I think for me also, on Beatrice, for her, it was really, it was really a very quiet strength. And I mean, such strength to be able to care for her siblings, care for the rest of the family. Mm. But of course, you know, being a teenager at the time, did not, did not see that for what it was. Yeah. In a very different context, you mm. spoke about with Indra, this idea of she was a leader without necessarily having those like male leader characteristics. And in this way, it just sounds like a figure who was influential and supporting, but yet didn't have, didn't have to do it by asserting dominance. Exactly. And she was also, you know, for her time being quite um, modern because she had a a day job. She had a paying day job as well. You know, so she, she really, you know, was, was quite um, 
she was really at the forefront, although I don't know if she, she realised it at the time. So something that seems to be a theme through people I've spoken to is older women who mm-hmm. have been these amazing figures but just haven't had, didn't have the external or self-recognition That's of right. what they've yeah. achieved. Yeah, and, and so in a sense, I'm really pleased and happy that you know you've asked me to do this podcast and you had the list of persons so I can so I can give her that recognition now I'm so glad to have heard about her because you look at somebody like Annie Lennox who's going to be upheld in mm. walls of fame forever and ever but there are these women who've actually had such a huge direct impact on people and often yep. in a much more significant way yep. and people often don't have an ability to step back and realize that actually very exactly. normal people have they're the people that have changed the world exactly right the unsung heroes thank you so much for talking about her because oh, thank you how great to and anybody listening to be able to hear about this amazing woman but that was just a really wonderful list of people and it's made me want to go and reread Little Women thank you so much for talking to me it's my absolute pleasure it's been yeah such a treat for me to speak to you thank you to Angeline my second international guest for such an interesting and moving conversation once again thanks to Ali and Helena Shilson whose music made this sound glorious. Thank you for listening and do come again.